This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got an interesting show for you today. We're lucky enough to speak with an author whose work we've actually discussed previously on the podcast. Our interview this week is with Michael O'Malley, a history professor at George Mason University and author of Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America, which is actually the first book that I talked about in our What We're Reading segment. We hope that you enjoy that and our usual bevy of numismatic content. And if you are enjoying this content every week, we humbly ask you to just click like and subscribe in whatever platform you are hearing us. That way we can continue this conversation with each other and with you. Now, Chris, there's an exciting announcement we want to acknowledge this week, right? Yeah, there is. So right here at the top, we'd like to welcome a new member of the podcast team. We've mentioned in previous episodes, our editor, Brian Hertel, who is almost entirely responsible for the content that you listen to from this podcast. Uh, because for processing it, right? And just for making it make sense, because yes. uh, if, if Jeff and I edited it, you'd be listening to lots of pauses and lots of me not, cursing not occasionally. Not a lot, but yeah, there's not a lot, but you know, we do make sure that Brian gets his work done and you know, he has something to work on editing. Right. The point being, we've talked about Brian before, but we actually, there's a new member of our podcast editing team, uh, Kelly Amos. Is joining the team as well. So we'd like to welcome Kelly to the show and to the team and just say that we're really grateful for her presence and for all of her help. Yeah, thank you. She's been aboard for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we certainly want to acknowledge that. We keep promising listeners that if you communicate with us, you know, they, you might hear your name on the air. So I want to give a big shout out this week to Marcus Davis. Marcus is listening to us every week. He is commenting on Facebook. He said back on May 30th, it's Saturday morning. I'm making breakfast and I'm listening to the podcast, Mr. Stark and Mr. Bullfinch. Please keep being very punny. I'm currently reading the fantastic $1804 from Whitman Publishing. When you get double eagle in, you're going to love it. He's right. I think I finished it in two days. You really can't put it down. He's also said as a call out to me, particularly, if you truly love your listeners, you'll give us a podcast episode of Jeff Stark as Ken Burns. That was a great moment in the last episode. So thank you so much. You're you're listening, making breakfast, doing dishes in the evening. I don't know if we'll ever have Ken Burns return to the show again. Again. But if we do, you can bet that we will have it here and you hopefully will be along for the ride. So thank you, Mr. Davis. We're going to keep doing what we do. Keep on keeping on. And the best way you can help us do that is to keep on listening and subscribe. Manage yep. to sneak in another plug there. So to dive into the, the core of the show, Jeff, have any major numismatic anniversaries passed since we last met? What was going on this week in history? Actually, yeah. You know, this is not a wasn't a huge time in the list that we have. There weren't a lot of things that like, oh, that's really exciting. It was small stuff. But the thing that jumped out to me was on June 19th, 1851. We're talking pre-Civil War. Go West in America. We're staying in America, but go West. On that date, that's when coining ceased at the Deseret Mint, which was the Mormon Mint. There's a small series of gold coins that were struck in Salt Lake City by the Mormons in Mormon territory. They called this place the State of Deseret, the last word meaning honeybee, which if you know anything about Mormons and, and the coinage, in fact, modern day Utah, I think the license plate has a honeybee or something. The honeybee and the hive, the beehive, they are forever linked to the Mormon faith and the people of Utah. So they struck coins in 1849 and 50, or they're dated, I should say, 1849 and 50, striking, as we know, continued into 1851. There is a single $5 gold coin that was struck in 1860. That must have been somewhere else. The Red Book doesn't delve into the details of that too much, but Brigham Young instigated the coinage system and personally supervised 
the Mint, which was housed in a little adobe building in Salt Lake City. It was inaugurated late in 1848 as a public convenience, the Red Book says. All of these coins are extremely expensive, though the three that stand out as a little more affordable are $2.5 and $5 from 1849 and the uh, $5 from 1850, which you're going to need $40,000 for one of each of those in fine condition, give or take. So that expensive is um, relative, but they're very tough, very expensive. They're rare. They're important to American Western history, Utah history, Mormon history. So that was kind of fun to see that that's what was happening this week Almost 170 years ago. We're talking 169 years ago. Those are interesting pieces of sort of U.S. westward expansion. They remind me a little bit of the San Francisco territorial gold pieces. Or I shouldn't say San Francisco, I should say California territorial gold pieces, but some of them sort of started around San Francisco before the establishment of the mint there. That's a really fun piece of Western in the context of the United States, the Western sort of frontier part of U.S. coinage history. So the issue of CoinWorld that we delve into this week comes from 2012. That's the year when face value was first published, which we thought was appropriate enough considering we have the author on, we might as well pick an issue from 2012 just as sort of a nod to that. And it's funny you mentioned San Francisco as part of the broader story of California gold because the cover story on the June 18th, 2012 issue was our colleague Paul Jilks actually went to the San Francisco Mint to chronicle the debut and usage of robot systems to package coin sets, which was new for the San Francisco Mint. You also had San Francisco Mint related just going on sale, then having been just on sale June 7th, that year was the two-coin set 75th anniversary of the San Francisco Mint. These were two American Silver Eagles, I should say. So lots of westward talk in the news there. What did you find that jumped out from the letters? There was one letter in particular that stood out to me, and I imagine it will resonate with you to some extent, Jeff, and it might resonate with some of our listeners, particularly those people who have worked in journalism in one capacity or another. The letter is entitled Journalism Done Right. It's a fairly long letter, so I'm going to sort of take excerpts from it because reading the entire thing would be a little bit tedious, interesting a letter as it is. It opens with, I'm writing today in my capacity as a director of one of the country's leading journalism schools in praise of Steve Roach's op-ed, A Rush to Be First, Coin Journalism in a 24-Hour News Cycle. In the op-ed, CoinWorld discussed an otherwise minor auction in Georgia offering an extremely rare 1870S gold $3 coin. The coin purportedly was discovered in 1997 glued in a souvenir booklet discovered by a European tourist. As Roach noted in his piece, this seemed tailor-made for the media, and the media took the bait, including Fox News. You'll notice in Roach's commentary the emphasis on fact-checking that goes on at CoinWorld. When the publication looked into the story and contacted experts, questions arose about the authenticity of the gold $3 piece. The auctioneer eventually withdrew the lot from the catalog and then, until its authenticity could be verified independently. That is coin journalism at work, removed from the 24-hour news cycle. It's the reason CoinWorld remains the flagship of numismatic publications. I also wanted to mention that I have concurred with all the tributes paid in CoinWorld since the retirement of Beth Deicher, including comments about her mentorship of the new editor, Steve Roach. Beth is a journalist first and foremost, and helped develop the culture of accuracy that exists in the publication you are reading. Kudos to the new editor who has always embraced the power of fact and is continuing Beth's legacy with this insightful commentary as he makes his own mark on CoinWorld. That's from Michael Bujega. Uh, I apologize if I mispronounced that name. It's spelled B-U-G-E-J-A. Bujega just made sense. If that's not how I pronounce it, I apologize. From Iowa State University, and he's the director of the journalism school at Iowa State University. And he's a coin collector and a past columnist for CoinWorld, so he dwells in both worlds. Yeah, and so this letter resonated with me not only because we've had Beth Deicher on the podcast, she's a former podcast, and we talked to her, we've had two different interviews with her actually, and we've talked to her about a whole wide range of interesting things, and we certainly appreciated her perspective, but I found the column particularly interesting in its mention of mentorship, because I think everyone who's listening has probably had a mentor of some form at some point in their lives. And mentors can be tremendously important. I know that I'm grateful to my mentors at CoinWorld and elsewhere who have helped me to you know, learn different things and improve my writing and improve my professional work. And I know that that's common across almost any field. Any field you could probably care to name and anyone in their career 
no one, you know, is born a fully formed career person, right? No one is, is sort of born into whatever professional role they're going to occupy. And part of finding that role and part of developing within that role is having a, having a mentor. So that resonated with me for a couple of reasons. And I imagine, Jeff, that you could probably reflect. I mean, you know Stephen Beth and Michael Bujega far better than I do. So this probably resonates with you to some degree as well. In recent weeks, I've been sort of I've using this um, year as sort of a reset on my life and a lot of things, even and at work, just going through the desk and getting rid of stuff. And, and what do I truly need? And there's stuff I haven't looked at in 10 years when you've been someplace for 16 years, that's understandable. So I go through that and I, I'm reminded of stories that I had a great time working on or questions that arose or things that, uh, you know, just moments from career. And I look back, some things I go, man, that was at the time I didn't like it. But, you know, I look back and I go, yeah, that's pretty good. More often than not, I go, gosh, I wish I hadn't written that because I don't, I don't want my name on it. I think, you know, we uh, writers, we tend to, to have that reflex, but thankfully ever forward. That is something I've had to come to terms with a little bit since working professionally in the numismatic space, but specifically at a numismatic publication is I definitely have some anxiety, whether sort of latent or overt about scrupulously fact-checking things. And of course, I have, have stepped in it many times and made a number of mistakes even in my almost two years now. I'm coming up on two years in the hobby at the end of the summer. I guess a little more than two years because I started my senior spring in college. So I guess technically it's been about two years. Right around the time we interviewed Leanna Spurrier, I guess would be roughly my two-year anniversary of publishing professionally in the hobby. But In some manner, but yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as a freelancer first, then as a staff member, then as a freelancer again. So it, in whatever capacity, I definitely feel that nervousness because it almost feels like a permanent record. In the sense of, you know, these things are going to live in print and on the internet in some archive forever. So I'm not delusional enough to think that anyone's ever going to be researching my life. I doubt I'll ever, aside from maybe my, you know, my, my great grandkids or something, I don't think there's ever a chance that I'll be consequential enough to be researched in the way that, you know, maybe you and I research famous coins or coin designers or something. But I'm acutely aware of the fact that every mistake that I make, and I imagine you feel the same way to some extent as many journalists do. Every mistake, every article contributes to a body of work. And even though one article with mistakes or one article that isn't very good is ultimately a drop in the bucket, cumulatively, you want to develop good writing habits and good work habits. And, you know, you saying that, you know, the incidents that this year is sort of serving as a pause button on your life to sort of cause you to step back and reflect on how you work, how you work well, you know, any mistakes you've made. I'm absolutely doing the same thing. I think that taking a beat to try to assess is my work product contributing positively or negatively to my cumulative body of work, I think is a very important one. And that's something that we, we think about on the podcast too. You know, we make an effort to try to give the listeners at least something worth hearing in the show. So I identify with that. What you said, definitely, I definitely agree with, and I feel the same way. Right now, I am arm's length from the AP style book on writing well by William Zinzer, a classic, the elements of grammar and the elements of editing and the elements of style by Strunk and White, a couple other writing books. And I need to pick those up and get renewed again to jump back into that positive space. So yeah, speaking of reading, speaking of these style books, Jeff, what numismatic books or volumes have you been digging into this week? What are you reading? So I will say this, my latest numismatic book acquisition, I have referred to it before in an article, but I did not own it. We had it at the Coin Roll Library, but I wanted one for my personal library. And I saw it in a dealer list. It was $40, which is a fair price shipped. It's called Becker the Counterfeiter. Now, who in the hobby wants to hold a counterfeiter in high esteem? Well, most people don't. And that's this person is not being held in high esteem. However, the idea behind this is Carl Wilhelm Becker was uh, he was born in 1772, so almost around the American Revolution time. Uh, he's German, if that wasn't obvious, but he made fake coins and other antiquities as early as 1806. There were 360 or so examples of fake Greek coins that he made. They are cataloged in this book, which was published in 1924. Besides Greek coins, he also produced fake Roman, medieval, and modern coins. 
It's interesting to note, while many of the Greek coins were struck in bronze in real life, he made the fake ones in silver and gold. Becker counterfeiters are avidly collected today. They are more often than not legitimately promoted or sold as Becker counterfeits. So is it possible that somebody could inadvertently buy something that was a counterfeit that was not disclosed to such? Well, of course. However, this book is one way to help keep that at bay. And also there are many major auction houses. They know they have specialists on hand. They promote these as, they list these as a Becker counterfeiter. So they disclose it, right? So everybody knows going into this, that this is not the legitimate. This is one that was made in the 1800s, early 1800s using, um, I believe using British Museum and other museum pieces as sort of the the samples or working examples from which to make these. So it's a fascinating book. I am building a, a segment of my library around counterfeit coins and counterfeiters. I debate, does this belong in a book in the section on ancient coins or counterfeits? Ancient coins or counterfeits? What's <laughs> That's interesting. In, into which category does that literature sort of fall? I, that's that's an interesting question. And I think it needs to go in the counterfeit categories because that's when they, it was made as, you know, they were made as counterfeits. So just as I have five or 10 books, maybe more, one on counterfeit US coins by Taxi, there's, there's a great book that was based on an exhibit in Italy. The Italian language book is relatively easy to find, but the English version is not. And I found a couple of them a couple of years ago it explores all sorts of manner of, of counterfeits and fakes. I think it has to go in that and there's paper money counterfeits and there's coin counterfeits and it's, it's just, they're all counterfeits. So it has to go in that under that rubric, but that's my latest purchase. So that's, uh, that oh, fits for so, what sounds, I'm uh, Sounds like a worthy addition. Reminds me of our conversation with Bern Nagengast about Henning Nichols and Winston Zack about uh, counterfeit yes, subsidiary US metal. coinage. Yes, bad, bad metal. metal yes. So a little bit of thematic, continuity there between things we've talked about in, uh, in previous pods. I, I find even our interview with Beth Deicher, I remember you know talking about the distinction. She worked for the Anti-Counterfeiting Education Foundation. And she talked about how it's illegal to knowingly sell counterfeit material. But if someone is collecting counterfeit coins, how does that fit into the law? And that was an interesting discussion. So I would encourage listeners interested in learning and thinking more about counterfeit material could go back and, uh, and look at those interviews. But while you're all doing that, I have something to answer for, don't I, Jeff? I've, yes, you uh, do. I've got. So, you asked me a question last week, and I've got to answer it. This is uh, by no means a trivial issue. Actually, <laughs> it totally is a trivial I'm, issue. I'm certain we've used that pun before, but I applaud you for doing it anyway. Got to go to the old reliable. So now you are going to answer for me. Yes, I was. It tied in with this week in history. On June 11th, 1866, the first Shield five-cent coins were struck. So the question revolves around that series. It's a relatively short series, but there are two years in the series when no examples were struck for circulation. Only proof examples were struck. So the question I need answered from you is what two years am I looking for? What two years were they only struck in proof? That would be 1876 and 1879. You are oh so close. Dang. What, you, what you, literally, you literally sandwiched them. It's 1877 and 1878. <laughs> of course I did. Well, there you go. I knew it was the I knew it was in the late 1870s. I couldn't place which specific dates, and I decided not to cheat and Google it. So 1877 and 1878. Okay. Um, There's your answer from last week. The question from this let's week. Let's see if I do any better this time around. And we'll have the answer in a week. It relates because we talked about the Mormon gold. I thought a different pioneer gold coinage would be fun to explore. And yeah. that is, it's a novice level question, but what is the name of the person that operated a private Georgia mint for about three months? Oh, cool. That's a fun question. I'll, uh, I'll think on that. I think you know the answer. Um, I think I do too. Although then again, I thought I knew it this time. So who's well, to say? No. <laughs> We're all learning here every, every day. Show up and learn. That's, no, that's, that's all you that's, can ask. You know, exactly. And, and hopefully you will uh, learn something from this interview. I keep wanting to say Martin O'Malley, but it's yeah, Mark. right. <laughs> Mar Martin O'Malley, the whose brief presidential bid, yes, uh, didn't didn't really go anywhere. Yes, Jeff, you're absolutely right. It is Michael O'Malley, and 
We're talking to him about his book, Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America. We hope you enjoy it. We are very lucky to be joined today by Michael O'Malley, a professor of history at George Mason University and author of Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America, which is a book that we've actually talked about on our book recommendation segment. Thank you so much for being here, Professor O'Malley. Thank you very much for inviting me. Face value deals with American notions of value and how those are expressed in currency. And underpinning all of these things is sort of racial difference and that this difference has always been a foundation for understanding value in an American context. And you, you identify the colonial context of a lack of species as an origin point for our nation's racialized understanding of value. Can you explain the origins of these notions of value, how race played into them, and a little bit about their early evolution? Yeah, I can take a shot at that. I mean, why I start with is mercantilism as a, an idea in economics. And mercantilism starts with the idea that wealth is finite. Wealth is tangible. It's arable land that you can farm, or it's stores of timber, or it's minerals in the ground. It's finite and tangible. The problem for the Americans is that there, this is pretty well known, there isn't any gold. You know, if you're English, wealth really consists of gold or silver. That's your primary understanding of wealth. The other things count, but gold and silver are primary as standards of wealth and objects of exchange. And the problem in the United States is there isn't any gold. And they're very hopeful there will be, but until 1849, they don't really find any. So they have to evolve a lot of different strategies for doing business, for doing commerce. And the most famous is probably wampum, which is a really fascinating thing. I highly recommend, if you don't know it, Mark Schell's book, Wampum, which argues that American paper money is basically the same as wampum. It's the same idea. Uh, so they resort to a lot of creative strategies. But at the same time, Americans are deeply invested in the slave trade. And the slave trade is based on a kind of fundamental natural difference between black and white, and that the idea of racial difference between black and white is non-negotiable. It's finite. It's non-negotiable. It can't be changed. I don't know if that quite answers the question. No, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, wampum is, as you mentioned, that's an area of collectible currency that some people yeah. are interested in. The gold standard emerged as a consistent metaphor used to articulate value, yeah. and shifting definitions of what it meant to be an American necessitated some constant value. Can you explain how race functioned alongside gold from independence through the 20th century? Well, one of the arguments I would make about slavery, the era of slavery, is that slaves really functioned just like gold. You know, they were the capital stock against which you could issue paper money, against which you could borrow. And the thing that enabled them to be slaves was an idea of their fundamental racial character. They could be enslaved and white people could not because they had a fundamental different nature, fundamentally different. They were essentially different. The phrase I use in the book is the species is like species, right? It's the same idea. It's a very similar idea. Slaves have a, a separate species. They're understood that way. And that separate identity allows them to be the foundation for currency. And they are literally the foundation of currency. They're on the money. They're on the paper money. They're depicted on it but they also are the capital stock of the South. So in a really important way from the earliest days, racial slavery functions as a kind of specie. It functions as the backing for currency. And it's similarly, like money itself, it's fraught with ambiguity about negotiation. I mean, the idea that slaves were essentially different and that that difference couldn't be negotiated away was obviously wrong because you just could look around and you could see light-skinned African-Americans who were the product of racial intermarriage, who were sort of giving the lie to the claim that there was a non-negotiable difference between black and white. And what originally got me uh, interested in this whole topic was the linguistic similarity between the, the multiple uses of the word passing. So you would pass counterfeit money and a person who was very light, uh, African-American was very light, could pass for white. And in both cases, you have the question, well, what is the difference if the thing can completely pass for what it's imitating? It raises the question of whether or not the difference between the two is stable at all. There's a large literature on racial passing. There was less of a literature on counterfeiting. But it was the similarity of those two things that got me in, drawn to the topic at first. The gold standard for me acts as a, a way to deny the negotiability that's at the core of American commerce. I mean, it's wonderfully negotiable. It's dynamic. It's fluid. Everything's up for negotiation. That's both great and terrifying because it means there's no difference between things or the difference between things isn't stable. You mentioned two 
interesting pieces of rhetoric or two interesting words and there's sort of a semantic difference between them. You know, specie in the sense of most collectors and most economists understand specie as bullion, gold, right. silver, etc. Right. And then you mentioned passing, the idea of passing counterfeit currency and passing in a racial context, passing for white, I right. guess, would be the most germane example here. Right. Can you explore that semantic difference a little bit? And are there any other words or phrases that might be commonly used in the context of Boolean specie? Are there any other terms that sort yeah. of construct this paradigm that you're describing? Yeah, they use amalgamation a lot. Before the Civil War, amalgamation was a word that was used to describe alloy. You know, you're amalgamating gold. It's an amalgamation. You're alloying it to reduce the amount of gold. And amalgamation is the term used often for the projects of a, the, you know, I have to use the word miscegenous, which a lot of people would say we shouldn't use because it implies that there's something bad about a racially mixed person. That is, it has M-I-S as the prefix, but there isn't really a good term. Racially mixed persons were products of amalgamation. And you'd see people in the South just deny that it actually happened, or they'd claim that the products of amalgamation had lost their value, or that they wouldn't, you know, they were harder to sell as slaves, or they didn't work as well as slaves, they couldn't reproduce. There are all sorts of arguments that completely denied common sense, the evidence all around you, that amalgamation was bad for slaves and it was bad for the person who was amalgamated. And it's very similar to arguments about amalgamating gold. You're reducing the value, or you're reducing the circulatability, you're reducing its obviously the purity, but you're reducing the thing that makes it function. So amalgamation was used a lot. I would flip that on its head, though, just a little bit. When you talk about alloying the 900 fine gold, which is um, the U.S. standard, right? You alloy it with copper and you do that to make it stronger because strong enough to hold up to the wear and circulation. Right. So to make it better. <laughs> to, make, to make it better indeed. Uh, I want to go back. In the slave market, of course, in slave markets, the presence of evident you know, whiteness was far from ambiguous. It was often really desirable. And some markets were specifically designed to sell light-skinned slaves. Like you might want your house slaves. You might want them to be lighter, or you might want concubines to be lighter. So it's not at all clear. It's a really good question that I couldn't find solid information on. To what degree does an admixture of whiteness change the value of the slave? And in, so, in many cases, it raised it. But of course, it could also lower it because then the slave was more likely to be able to escape because they could pass for Spanish. They could circulate more freely, in other words, if they were mixed. So I'm sorry, that's a digression. Go ahead. I, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. I, I do want to go back, though, and, and try to get some understanding on one area. You talk about this, you know, in the American context, and you reference that, well, okay, somebody like England, they have gold and silver there, but they had slavery there, too. So what about the American experiment differentiates? Why does it not work in that context, too? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on that. I'm not sure I, I made the best case possible for that. So England pulls off this remarkable thing in that they end slavery. It's not as central to their domestic economy as it is in the United States. But they gradually, over a period of less than a decade, they abolish slavery and they do it by compensating slaveholders. They mm. borrow money and they pay the slaveholders to compensate for the loss of the property. And that idea never gets any traction in the United States. In fact, when it's brought up, it's repeatedly voted down in Congress and then it's eventually even banned. You can't even talk about it. There are various schemes for what they call compensated emancipation. Lincoln has one that he's very fond of, and you, they usually involve swapping Western land for slaves. So you'll get you know, 160 acres in Kansas in exchange for X number of slaves. I think one of the differences is that England has a central bank, and it's really committed to it. So England has a institutional administrative control over the value of currency. Yeah. And the United States several times tries a central bank and is completely ambivalent about it. So by the 1830s, there isn't a central bank anymore. There isn't a kind of umpire of value, and it's necessary for slaves to play that role. This is, again, why they're, how they back the currency in the South, and why I think increasingly in the South, they'll insist on what they call the one-drop rule. That is, you know, any amount of black blood makes you black, no matter what you actually look like. I think if the United States had had a central bank, it might have been more comfortable with the idea of renegotiating the meaning of racial difference. So 
these notions of, of racial difference and the institution of slavery not only undergirded the banking system, particularly in the South, but to, right. to some extent in the North in as the well. In the North too, yeah. And you say that it allowed for monetary experimentation. What did these experiments look like? How did slavery enable them? And how did that then interact with the issuance of federal paper money during the Civil War? Well, I'm sure most of your listeners would know this, that, that before the Civil War, there was virtually well, there are very, very few restrictions on who can start a bank and what you have to do to start a bank. So in the most extreme cases, you can just get a bunch of guys together, assemble what tangible assets they have and start printing paper money. The estimate is usually 9,000 different kinds of currency circulating in the United States up to the time of the Civil War. And not just bank currency, bank paper, you know, paper from legitimate chartered banks, but also private individuals issue currency. Private companies do, bridge companies, road construction, all sorts of businesses, insurance companies issue forms of paper money, and then private individuals issue letters of credit that can circulate like money. And it, to modernize, it's completely puzzling. When I have to explain this to students, I have to keep saying, yeah, though you could just start a bank and print your own money. I have to keep saying that because they're sort of stunned by the idea. And many people did. That degree of experimentation, I think, is made possible by the fact that they have this is where the cultural analysis comes in rather than straight economics. There's a realm of non-negotiability built into the American economy around race. And no amount of economic exchange is going to make a black person equal to a white before 1860, right? It's just not going to happen. There's a permanent zone of non-negotiability. And in a sense, it gives people the ability to have their cake and eat it too. Like I can start my own bank and I can print my own money and then we can build our frontier town simply on the enthusiasm for our potential, but no amount of enthusiasm will make Frederick Douglass equal to a white man. That enthusiasm that you talk about, it seems like there's a tension that runs through a lot of the history that you discuss, a tension between a, a desire for easy credit yeah. and a desire for non-negotiable sort of bedrock value, right? The idea that yes. you want an objective standard of value, but you also want easy credit. Right. How was that tension reconciled and has it ever been reconciled? I don't think it's ever been. It's always showing up again in um, what you might call sort of sentimental appeals to solidity. I mean, I think Bitcoin is an attempt to do that. Bitcoin is all mm -hmm. about the thrill of a modern currency. But the whole point of it is that it's going to get to a point where no new Bitcoins can be produced. It's going to reach a natural limit. To me, I think it's a fundamental aspect of American life that Americans are deeply ambivalent about economic exchange. We love it and we're made nervous by it. And unlike countries that had a more stratified class system, we're theoretically in a place where there's no boundaries. There's no boundaries on what you can be. The American dream, what does it say? I usually define it as no one needs to be confined by the circumstances of their birth. I rarely get students to argue yes, people should be confined by the circumstances of their birth. Even if they will agree that this ideal is not always lived up to, no one says, if your father's poor, you should remain poor. Or if your father's a plumber, you should be a plumber. We're committed to the idea of almost endless negotiability. And the cost of that is a very deep anxiety about the limits and about the meaning of exchange and the meaning of that negotiability. And so one of the ways that shows up is a kind of fetish about the gold standard. Because the gold standard, nature can't renegotiate it, right? It can't be renegotiated. Everything else can, but gold can't. That anxiety you mentioned seems to manifest itself in where your book concludes around 2012. That's roughly where the analysis cuts yeah. off. Right. And you were reflecting on calls to abolish the Fed and return to the gold standard, sort right. of, which has been bandied, a concept and a policy suggestion that's been bandied about by a lot of sort of libertarian people. You mentioned uh, Ron and Rand Paul. Yeah. Those calls don't seem to have intensified in the last few years, but there are satirical notes and Boolean rounds that do continue to communicate political themes. They're very popular at coin yeah. shows. Yeah. And some of them have symbolism that I think many people would consider racist. Yeah. And so do you see a continuity between the racialized values that you studied and discussed in the book and the political climate today? I would agree with you that in, in 2012 or when Obama was first elected, there was lots of talk about the gold standard and there was lots of political action around the gold standard. And I always pointed out that when people talked about Obama, they always worried about what they called Zimbabwe style inflation. They never talked about Weimar Germany or continental dollars. They talked about Zimbabwe. And you know, I think for a lot of people, I don't think I'm making a radical claim here. I think for a lot of people, Obama represented a kind of inflation, that he was occupying an office that he wasn't 
entitled to. And if you were a racist, and there are lots of racists, you would feel that really strongly. And the analog was that the money that he would produce, the money produced under his regime, would also be valueless. So there are all sorts of satirical notes of, you know, Obama's picture with a $10 million bill, and that's what we'd all be using to buy eggs, you know, that kind of thing. It is interesting, your point, that enthusiasm for the gold standard does seem to have declined. And that's really fascinating since I finished the book. And I don't have a solid handle on that. The other interesting thing that's appeared is the rise of what they call now modern monetary theory, which I would say at the time when I was writing the book, my book was engaged in, although it, it didn't have a name yet, you know, and I didn't know it. It hadn't yet been coined as a term. And that modern monetary theory really starts from a position that money is not scarce. It's not any really much different from Keynes, except it starts from the position that money is not scarce. And if you start from that position, you can think differently about the economy. But I think your point is a really good one, and I don't have a solid answer for it. The enthusiasm for the gold standard does seem to have declined. So are coins appropriate canvases to commemorate civil rights leaders and, and others? That's in, a great that question. Uh, that's a great question. Um, that is really interesting. I need to think about that. Um, <laughs> this idea that the money has played a role in building the system that to which they've been uh, subject to or are under. So what's how do you reckon with that? <laughs> well, they were always on Confederate currency and, and Southern banks – Always had to pay, almost always oh, had yes. depictions yeah. of slaves, right? That's no, very, well, yeah. very idyllic settings, of course. Right, right. Looking happy, right. Uh, it would be really interesting if coins had, you know, pictures of the guys building the capital, right? The slaves building the capital, or or uh, slaves building roads. That would be really interesting. And the solidity, right? The durability of coins is a powerful thing. It would speak really well to the idea of cementing that memory into circulation. That's a really interesting idea that I haven't thought about because a lot of my book was more concerned with paper money than with coinage because paper money just becomes the more common symbol sure. of the problem. But yeah, that's a really good question. And I like the reference, uh, the story of Emanuel Ninger. Ninger? Yes. Is that great? Yeah. 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 <laughs> this yeah. Uh, this uh, apparently a German emigre who uh, was <laughs> busted creating counterfeits. Right. Uh, just such a fun story. Can you recap that for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So Ninger was a was an immigrant. He was a farmer in New Jersey, just over the river, not too far from Manhattan. And he would, a few times a year, he, he would hand draw counterfeits. He would take good paper and he'd soak it in coffee and age it in various ways. And then he would hand draw 50 and $100 bills with a pen and brush and ink. And they're extremely good. They're really good. They don't look exactly right. But the thing about them is that they suggest the look of exactly right really well. And then he would go into Manhattan and he would spend them. And he'd typically do it in a way that was very risky. He'd go to a liquor store and buy something, or he'd ask for change for one of his $100 counterfeits, which takes you know extraordinary nerve because that's a lot of money at that point. So he eventually got caught. Supposedly, he spent one of the bills and the bartender put it down on the wet bar and saw the ink running and then chased after Ninger, who had left. There are many fascinating things about this case, but the Secret Service had been looking for him, I should say, for years because people who got his money, when they recognized that it was a hand-drawn counterfeit, were really astonished by them. So they began to frame them and put them up in, in bars and saloons and liquor stores where he passed them. And he even got a nickname in the newspapers. They referred to him as Jim the Penman, yeah. who was a forger in, in a play. So he was actually celebrated. You could find articles talking about him before they arrested him. And when the Secret Service arrested him, they didn't believe he was the counterfeiter. They thought he was just the counterfeiter's passer, just the agent the boodle carrier, as they called him. He was the guy who carried the money for the actual counterfeiter. And the reason is he, he didn't fit the criminological profile of what a counterfeiter was supposed to look like. A counterfeiter was supposed to be sort of wiry and thin and scholarly looking. And Ninger looked like a you know stolid peasant farmer. And so they didn't believe him. And he eventually had to prove his identity by forging the signature of one of the Secret Service agents. And he offered to he said, bring me a photograph of yourself and I'll counterfeit it perfectly. And the whole transformation of his work from money to art there, mm -hmm. talking about being framed, that recalls to me J.S.G. Boggs, you know, yes, the, yes. The, the more contemporary, the modern time contemporary to us, uh, who's I actually have a, a couple of his pieces. But this idea that the value is contained in the work to create this object 
that isn't real, but it right. you know has a, an extra purpose then as art. So, right. Very quickly, people were offering more money for one of Ninger's counterfeits than their face value. So he'd have a counterfeit 50 and people were offering $100 for the counterfeit 50. They contained more genuine labor value, right? More skilled labor than the circulating paper money. And that would be, I think you could apply that certainly to a person of mixed race who passed for white. That is, they contain more genuine labor value than the lazy white person next to them. They're of more value. It's a really fascinating case. Ninger's influence was felt in art because there were a whole genre of painters, as I'm sure you know, the trompe l'oeil painters, who uh, painted very highly realistic versions of currency and other things, usually on a flat surface. And most of those painters were questioned by the Secret Service on suspicion of being Emmanuel Ninger because they were so good at counterfeiting, it was assumed that they were doing it as a side issue. And uh, this is a side issue. My brother was an art student. He's a children's book illustrator. And he told me when I started on this project, he said, Mike, you know what art students do when they sit around with nothing to do? They talk about how they could get away with counterfeiting because they have the skills and they have the access to materials. (laughs) (laughs) he said it's and they're broke he said it's a common theme among art students (laughs) oh that's that's great the ninger episode captures another theme that you talk about in your book a little bit and that's sort of this heightened anxiety around the turn of the 20th century about the sort of nature of citizenship in many ways i think that some of those concerns about citizenship are echoed in contemporary politics today obviously it's been a perennial issue in america how did an influx of immigrants from all over the world. How did these, the sort of racialized notions of value, these racialized notions yeah. of value, how did those map on to the waves of immigrants coming in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? It is really fascinating. One of the crises of the late 19th century, there's a fancy term for it. You know, there's a crisis of representation in the late 19th century. And a standard interpretation that comes from if you ask me what's the biggest difference between 1850 and 1890, one thing would obviously be no more slavery. But the other thing is by 1890, you're just awash in mass-produced copies of things, of some unknown original. And so you just go to the Sears catalog and you order furniture, and that furniture is a copy of some original. But you don't know anymore where it came from, what the original is. And this is famous in uh, literary criticism from Walter Benjamin, that there's a, a kind of fetish for the original. And the same thing would apply to people. If you have immigrants coming over and they get off the boat in their native dress, speaking with their Irish brogue or whatever, or their Italian accent, with hard work and study, they can transform themselves and they can become just like you. And then it's hard to know the difference between the original and the imitation. That line is constantly being blurred. And on the one hand, again, that's a great thing. We love upward mobility. We love self-transformation. We applaud the hardworking immigrant who gets ahead, but we're also made uneasy by that person because they blur the line between me and them or us and them. And I think one of the most interesting examples to me is the rise of IQ tests, which in the United States were specifically designed to sort out the category they invented this word called the moron. There were imbeciles and idiots and morons. And you didn't have to worry about imbeciles. They had a mental age of three. And I'm making, this is not exactly right. And idiots had a mental age of six. But the person you had to worry about was the moron who had a mental age of 12 or 13. The moron could read and write and hold a job and go to the store and marry and reproduce. And the moron could pass for a normal person. And you needed skilled experts to sort out the difference between a normal person and a mentally defective person who was circulating among you. And so the IQ test was originally applied to immigrants at Ellis Island and found from a very small sample that shockingly high percentages of immigrants coming to America in 1905 were morons. And then it was applied to American soldiers in World War I in camp. And it's close to 50% of American soldiers were found to have a mental age of 13 or below. Obviously, that wasn't an exact science. Right. It was, no, it's, and the, the test was designed to exclude people, essentially. Right. And, and I think the desire for that test, right, the desire to have a test that would prove this is a symptom of our mixed feelings about the free circulation of people and value. Right, the desire to have that be true. I didn't talk about this much in the, the book, but one of the other cases is fingerprinting. There's a really interesting book about fingerprinting that makes the case that finger, the idea that everybody's fingerprints are different has never actually been objectively tested. There's a lot of people in the world. And the difference between your fingerprints and mine might be really obvious, but it also might be extremely subtle, especially if you assume that what you're going on 
is a fragmentary record, right? I left my fingerprints on the on the safe, right? And it's they're not really solid. They're partial or they're blurred. And the desire to have fingerprints be a fundamental mark of non-negotiable character was really strongly felt. And it was so strongly felt that police departments embraced fingerprinting before they had real evidence that it actually produced what was claimed. A lot of these policies and tendencies that you're talking about, whether it's racialized notions of value, trying to ascribe someone's sort of essential character to a handful of traits, all of these things seem to fly in the face of a lot of rhetoric that's deployed in America about America and Americans, which is to say that, you know, the possibility of self-fashioning, I think that's how you put it in the book, always runs up against this desire for, for fixed value. Right. As the 20th century wore on, how did people begin to understand value differently, particularly in the context of the Great Depression? That's a good question. I'll often make the claim in class that the fundamental plot of almost every TV show or movie is somebody's pretending to be something they're not. It's like the only plot we have. You know, the criminal seems like a good guy and the cop spends the whole show finding out that he's really a criminal or the cop goes undercover and pretends to be somebody he's not in order to find the perpetrator. And sometimes sometimes in a comedy, a person will tell a lie and then we watch the lie spin out of control and it's funny. The fundamental premise is the same. Somebody's pretending to be something they're not. And that's not the premise of literature and art in 1776 because widespread tr- self-transformation isn't as widespread. So we get maybe more comfort with the play of identity in media. There's lots of movies that, well, no, do we really? I mean, there are lots of movies where the, the, the false image is sinister, dangerous, and subversive of ordinary society. And then there are lots of movies where the guy who puts on a false appearance is the guy who restores normal order and restores normal, normal life. I don't know if that's answering your question, is it? No. No, it is. I guess what I'm curious about is our departure from the gold standard in 1933 yeah. seems to have thrown a wrench into the paradigm of value that we've been talking about. And it seems like that departure would provoke a lot of anxiety, but FDR managed to get a lot of Southern Democrats on board. And so I I guess I'm just curious how did the sense of sort of racialized value and the sort of quasi-magical properties that people ascribe to gold, how did those things play out both socially and politically? It is astonishing that Roosevelt is able to pull that off. And it's astonishing how little objection there is, considered how much heat there was around the idea of the gold standard, you know, before, before the 30s. I think partly Roosevelt, he, as you say, he's, he's very good at giving the South money in exchange for control. So it's now a standard argument among historians that Roosevelt wins the South over by making sure that the benefits don't go to black people or they go disproportionately to white people. So if there's federal money, it's going to go mostly to the white community and they're going to maintain their hold over politics and their hold over political economy. He also does, he's a genius at political theater. And my favorite example is, it's in the book, is Fort Knox, which Mm -hmm. I argue is nothing more than political theater. There's no need for more space. All the gold in the United States, so your audience probably knows this. So Roosevelt makes monetary gold illegal. He insists that you, as of such and such a date, you have to, I I can't remember the date right now off the top of my head, but um, you have to turn in monetary gold to the treasury in return for a price set by Roosevelt. And it becomes illegal to hold bullion or coins. You can still have gold jewelry, but you can't have monetary gold. And so the United States begins accumulating a lot of gold. And theoretically, we need Fort Knox to hold all this gold, but there's no evidence. I couldn't find any evidence of anybody saying, oh, we're out of vault space at the Federal Reserve Bank. We need a new vault. And I'm completely sure that Roosevelt authorized the construction of the Fort Knox vault in order to reassure people that there was still a solid foundation for what had become a fiat money economy. And so when they announced the the vault was heavily publicized, it was in all the newspapers and there were top secret security devices. And there was a train carrying the gold with guys with machine guns mounted on the top. And they wouldn't say exactly how much was in there. There was an interesting combination of secrecy and publicity around it that I think was nothing more than Roosevelt's genius for political theater, which, which he had in abundance. As gold was not the basis for the currency, there was this public display of this impregnable vault of gold. And I certainly grew up 
with Fort Knox as a subject of cartoons and jokes and humor as this source of impregnable value. Well, it just makes me think of the uh, Bond film Goldfinger from right. 1964, right? Right, right. right. There are Bugs Bunny cartoons where Yosemite Sam is you know, trying to tunnel into Fort Knox and that kind of thing. Right. So you're mentioning of you know Roosevelt using Fort Knox as a sort of way of smoothing over a transition yeah. towards a fiat currency. It seems something that your book didn't delve into, and I'd be curious if these same themes are borne out in this next historical chapter. It seems we truly became a fiat currency in the late 1960s into the 1970s because right. silver certificate redemption was suspended in 1968, and then we departed from the gold standard entirely in 1971 through the right. Nixon shock. Right. I'm curious. It seems like these moves also are coinciding with with the civil rights movement. Yeah. Was there any connection between these racialized notions of value that we've talked about through all of these decades? Yeah. Does that come up in the context of the civil rights movement and the departure from the gold standard? Yeah, I, th- I think it has to. I mean, the civil rights movement is such a powerful symbolic movement. It has so many, I mean, there's so many people in the 60s, feminists, hippies, anti-war protesters, who will say that the civil rights movement was their inspiration in Northern Ireland, right? The Catholic rebels in Northern Ireland cite the civil rights movement in India, in South Africa. It's a, it's globally an extremely powerful movement for social justice and has really powerful effects. When Nixon goes off the gold standard, I looked a lot for objections and for people losing their cool over the abandonment of the gold standard. And I found very little. And what was really striking at that point was the triumph of a kind of scientific management idea, similar to the management of the Vietnam War. That is, we have experts, we have computers, we have trained administrators, we don't need this primitive leftover an earlier of an earlier day. And so I was surprised how few people, they just said, yeah, gold, it's a leftover, it's a, it's a legacy of the 19th century like fountain pens, and we don't need those anymore. So the combination of the moral force of the civil rights movement and the vision of equality that it articulated and the technocratic state I think makes it relatively easy to abandon gold. Huh. You mentioned a little bit earlier in your historical analysis in an earlier period, you do mention a hierarchy of metals, the idea that people associate gold with quote unquote civilization, civilization as defined by a certain group of or groups of people. And then, you know, lower metals of, you know, lower quote unquote lower societies or lower races, all in quotes. Right. How does this manifest itself over the course of time? And what are some of the anxieties that it provokes in an American audience or in American consumers? Yeah. It's very clear that there are lots of economists who will articulate the idea of progress in metals. And primitive societies use brass or copper, and more advanced societies use gold, or use silver and then gold. And the usual the usual claim was that gold was the you'll literally see this gold was the natural metal of the Teutonic races or the Anglo-Saxon races. And you can see Mexicans and Chinese being referred to as silver handling peoples. They're not gold handling peoples. That language is used as if, you know, there's some kind of gene in Mexicans that makes them prefer silver to gold. That language is all over the place at the height of the gold standard debate. And the idea is that Gold represents progress towards higher civilization. The most famous or notorious example of this is when they're building the Panama Canal. They segregate the workers in the Panama Canal, and the white workers are referred to as the gold workers, and they're paid as gold. And the Panamanian workers are referred to as the silver workers, or African-American workers who are there are referred to as silver workers, and they're paid in silver. And they have two pay windows, and they get different money because they're different people. It's really striking. And the the racialization of the language of gold is all over the place. It's the the natural metals. It's the natural money of superior people. Huh. And that manifests in U.S. policy around 1900 with the passage of the Gold Standard Act. And that's also when America really began to expand its empire in, in a meaningful way. We acquire an overseas empire. It would be common to argue about the Philippines, right? As you, you probably know, the Philippines, after we liberate the Philippines from Spain, Filipinos begin a national independence movement and declare themselves an independent republic. And the United States says very quickly, hold on a minute. That's not what we had in mind. And there are, you can find uh, Senator Albert Beveridge from Montana is the most notorious saying that no alchemy can change the Filipinos into a self-governing people. They are not a self-governing race. They lack the essential qualities of democracy. And that same language would be used by somebody like Beveridge to describe why we need to be on the gold standard, because we are, we, meaning 
uh, white Americans are naturally a gold-handling people. There's a quote, what is it that prevents us from using silver as our money? Is it the Constitution of the United States? And the answer is no, it's not the Constitution of the United States. It's the Constitution of man. This was in a pamphlet produced to advocate for the gold standard, that we are so constituted, Americans, that we will naturally use gold. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's at a moment when, you know, okay, so here comes all these guys from Sicily. Are they a gold-handling people? You know, are they a silver-handling people? Can they become a gold-handling people? It's even saying it, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I can't find, this is what I say about history. You can't make this stuff up. That language is everywhere. That language about, about the affinity of certain racial types for certain kinds of money. And it also seems a convenient pretext to create certain structures of power as well and to order society a certain way right. in a way that fundamentally privileges one group or a handful of groups. Right. So, Right. And I think that's very clear. At the same time, right, not only are we engaged in an overseas empire, but the 1890s are the era of radical racism in the United States. You look at the – if you looked at Virginia – in 1892, where I live, black people are voting in pretty large numbers, and they're holding significant political power, and they're able to exert significant influence on the government. You know, they're a minority, so they don't control it, but they exert significant influence. By 1905, they're not voting at all. They've been completely disenfranchised, and they're completely shut out of the political process, and the formal legal segregation laws are in place, saying, you know, this water fountain is for you, and this one is for white people. So you have disenfranchisement, and you have the Jim Crow laws, and you have the beginnings of a campaign of kind of the spectacle lynchings. So there's a radical racist regime that takes place in the 1890s, right around the triumph of the gold standard. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think those things are unrelated. The last thing I'll ask is... It seems the 1890s also, though, represents a pretty significant moment for the free silver movement. Obviously, the Bland-Allison Act in 1878 was one of their most, if not their most significant legislative victories. But how does the free silver movement, you know, led by William Jennings Bryan, who becomes quite an infamous populist or famous infamous, however you want to conceptualize that sort of populist figure. How does the populism of silver map onto the sort of racial hierarchy of metals that you alluded to yeah. that existed in the minds of a lot of these economists and, and sort of well, what, monetary anthropologists. I, I was guess. Yeah, I was very interested in the precursor to the Populist Party, which you could say is the Greenback Party. And the Greenback Party is a fascinating group. They have moments of influence, but never that much. The Greenback Party is committed to greenbacks. They look at the Civil War and they say, well, we did really well with a fiat currency made of paper. Why don't we just keep using it? Why don't we continue to go back to that? It's uh, responsive to the needs of democracy. And it's elastic, right? It's an elastic currency. It doesn't, it's not prone to seasonal shortages. So the Greenback Labor Party is organized around the idea that we should continue to use greenbacks. And they're surprisingly committed to racial equality. One of their presidential candidates is Benjamin Butler, who's a Civil War political general, who acquits himself pretty well, who's very strongly committed to racial equality. He doesn't start out that way, but by the end of the war, he says they should get equal pay. The black soldiers, they acquitted themselves bravely. They should be buried in the same cemeteries as white soldiers. They should lie between their, beside their brothers who fought for the Union. He becomes very strong on this. And I think there's a connection between the idea that value is socially created, that is, we as a society decide that we're going to accept this paper money and we as a society decide that we're going to regard each other as equal. And the idea that, yeah, there's this affinity between the idea of the social creation of value and the idea of the social creation of equality. The silver movement is fascinating. And I'm one of those uh, historians who thinks it's important to make a distinction between the populists who are greenbackers, which is a very distinctive political ideology. And the populists like Brian, who have a kind of anti-elite rhetoric, but who embrace the silver movement. And the silver movement was always using that phrase, the dollar of our daddies, right? And they would always draw on the idea that Hamilton wanted silver and the founders wanted silver. And we're actually going back to the authorities who founded the country. And they'd also often refer to it as the white metal. They'd call it that a lot, which I don't think is accidental language. To me, and I'm not alone in thinking this about the populace, they made kind of a tragic mistake. They allied themselves with the silver movement, which was kind of a bugaboo. You had this essentialized account of value based in silver, and you lost the more radical vision of restructuring the economy that had been present in the Greenback Party. And of course, if you look at the Greenback Party, 
what does our economy look like now? It looks much more like what the Greenback Party wanted than what either the Silverites or the gold bugs wanted in the 1890s. As we wrap up our discussion today, let's bring it back to, to modern times and talk about modern paper money, specifically this idea of having the contretemps, the um, the fight to get uh, Harriet Tubman on paper money, represented on American paper money. Certainly the images of paper money, despite the fact that there's no, you know, that we have a fiat currency, not something backed by specie, those are still symbolic and important. How does the fight to get her on the money align yeah. with these broader concepts? It's a really great question. I was at a panel put together by the Secretary of the Treasury at the Smithsonian a few years ago, where they got a lot of historians together who worked on money or worked on American history generally to talk about who should be on the money and how should we change depictions. And it was delightful and fascinating because everybody was lobbying for their favorite candidate to be on the money, but everyone agreed that it was extremely important. The symbolic value of having someone on the currency was really important. I don't know where that plan is. I mean, I think it's in suspension. I don't I don't think the Trump administration is going to welcome the idea of Harriet Tubman. I would have put Ida Wells probably or Alice Paul or somebody like that on the money maybe, but everybody had their favorite candidate. It was very funny. I think it is interesting because it does take you back to the antebellum paper money, which had depictions of slaves on it. My worry about Harriet Tubman was that it would be easy to turn her into a kind of mammy figure. I mean, she's historically a very ferocious person, very bold, very dangerous, right? She's not a mild person. She's not motherly. She's a zealot and a committed zealot. You know, she's sort of like John Brown in that way. And she's combative and brave and heroic. And you can't depict somebody with a gun on currency. Apparently there's a law. And I was really afraid they would sort of soften her down to a kind of mammy figure, very much like the antebellum depictions of slaves on money were, as you said, idyllic or pastoral, right? They were very rural and they looked happy and it looked like a, a fun day in the sun rather than laboring in cotton fields. So I wanted some kind of uh, some kind of character who couldn't be easily softened. And one of the great ideas they had at that conference was to put a three-part panel on the back of the money. Like um, Rosa Parks goes up to the bus and the bus driver points her to the back. And in the last panel, she's being led away in handcuffs. You could tell a little story like a graphic novel. That would be really interesting. So I would I would welcome the chance to have a more broad public debate and maybe even as they do in Europe, change the configurations on currency more often. It does seem the representations and the vignettes that exist on currency now have been pretty static for, yeah, we, right. for decades where, yeah. where before, as you right. know, you know, there were some absolutely beautiful, just massive vignettes. And of course, Gorgeous. they were. Yeah. And but there were also vignettes that communicated themes that we've already discussed, you know, imperialism and, you know, yeah. native displacement and, and slavery in the case of obsolete notes. Right. I wonder, you describe money as something unthought. People don't really see the politics of money. Yeah. And it seems like right now we're reckoning with the heritage of the Confederacy. Yeah. Do you think that a similar reckoning will come for our paper currency. I mean, the presence of Thomas Jefferson on the $2 bill or Jackson on yeah, the 20 is a good, a good example. Question, I mean, will, yeah. will that reckoning will that reckoning come to our currency? That's a really good question. I mean, I would welcome it. I, I in general, my feeling about the statues coming down is that if people are publicly engaged in a debate about the meaning of history, I'm happy because that's what I do for a living. That's what I try to get students to do. If you tell me that people Ordinary people are passionately engaged in discussing the meaning of the life of some historical figure in a statue. I don't see a downside. That's what we do. So I love to see the discussion. And I don't think that the statues or the depictions of Jefferson should be regarded as timeless. I did a paper for a book on Hamilton, a chapter in a book, a collection of essays about Hamilton the musical, about the different ways Hamilton was used and the different ways Hamilton is described. Some people, of course, hate him because he's the symbol of libertarians have tended to be hostile to him because he's the symbol of central banking and elite control. But then he's always on the money for exactly that reason. I think I would certainly welcome a reckoning. I know that that it's politically controversial and it makes people uneasy because they think history is being erased if Jefferson is removed for the money. But when I teach about the Revolutionary War, I don't bring $2 bills in so that we can gaze on Jefferson. Right? They're not actually history. They're a take on the meaning of history. And I would, would certainly welcome, like, what if, you know, what if it was Jefferson on one side and the slaves of Monticello on the other? That would certainly be um, 
acknowledging Jefferson's contribution, his magnificent contributions to American political thought, and acknowledging the foundation on which they were built. So we could rethink money in terms of a more coherent artistic statement than we generally let it make. Huh. I think I agree with you. And <laughs> on that, no, I, I mean, it certainly would make the Jefferson Nichols design a little bit more representative, at least of Jefferson's life, yeah. though it's a, it's a small canvas on, on which to work. Right. I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. I know that this discussion is something that I know a lot of our listeners will enjoy and probably have their own feelings about. But thank you so much for taking the time to share not only your research, but your perspective on some sort of contemporary currency issues with us. Thank you very much. These are great questions, very well informed, and it was a pleasure talking to you. We are just thrilled to have had the chance. So uh, can't can't say enough good things. Thank you so much. You guys know what you're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> That's not always the case. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. And that was our interview with Michael O'Malley, author of Face Value. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and, of course, are enjoying every episode. And if you found this episode enjoyable, interesting, helpful, informative, or if you just enjoyed it for any other reason, please keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast. It's the best and most direct way to support the show. Until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.